Welcome to the Hump Day Exchange. I am your host, Scott Henderson, a.k.a. Scotty Hendo on the interwebs. We're recording in Tech Square, the heart of Atlanta's texting, and are excited to bring you this special year-end episode we're calling the Hump Day Exchange 2017 Sampler. Hump Day Exchange is a collaborative effort of Sandbox ATL and ATDC that is recorded in front of a live audience each month. And to close out this year, we've put together the sampler highlighting segments from three episodes we think really demonstrate the breakthrough talent breakthrough ideas, and breakthrough companies you find at TechSquare. If you're listening to the show for the first time, here's how the program goes. After a short introduction to the topic, I invite our three featured guests separately into the hot seat for a one-on-one -on -one conversation focused on their perspective. And once all three are through, we gather them for a roundtable conversation where they get to ask each other questions. And then we finish with a town hall-style Q&A with our live audience guests. It's, it's always lively. It's informative conversation, definitely chock full of knowledge and insight. In 2017, we talked with 30 guests over 10 episodes exploring a wide range of topics and themes. Things like smart cities, the downside of disruption, women in technology, virtual reality, global tech hubs, and the student hustle. For the 2017 Sampler Remix, we've assembled snippets from when we convened experts to discuss the topics of artificial intelligence, drones, and esports. Without further ado, let's dive into the deep end. All right, all right. So Siri, Alexa, Netflix, Pandora, Nest, your car's accident avoidance system, Tesla's autopilot, anytime you take off or land in an airplane, you're surrounded by artificial intelligence, or as we call it, AI. AI is everywhere in our movies, our books, and our media. Uh, Westworld, Ex Machina, and more. You know, think about how many different places. But most amazing to me is we're really only at the conception of this technology. Um, and I, I wanted to at least uh, refer back to the, the holy book of Wikipedia and quote you from the scripture of what is artificial intelligence. So if you've, if you've never really run into this or if you heard it and you, you've been just kind of bluffing your way through what AI is, here's what Wikipedia has to say about it. Uh, artificial intelligence is intelligence exhibited by machines. In computer science, the field of AI research defines itself as the study of intelligent agents. Any device that perceives its environment and takes actions that maximize its chance of success at some goal. The central problem or Goals, central problems or goals of AI research include reasoning, knowledge, planning, learning, natural language processing, perception, and the ability to move and manipulate objects. In the 21st century, AI techniques, both hard and soft, have experienced a resurgence following concurrent advances in computer power, sizes of training sets, and theoretical understanding, and AI techniques have become an essential part of the technology industry, helping to solve many challenging problems in computer science, thus said the book of Wikipedia. So even as we get our minds wrapped around the technology, we're already seeing the economic impact of AI, uh, not just on blue-collar jobs. It's, it's increasingly becoming more uh, part of the white-collar professional uh, reality as well. According to uh, Quartz Media, one Japanese insurance company, uh, Fukuoka Mutual Life Insurance, is reportedly replacing 34 human insurance claim workers with IBM Watson Explorer starting this year. Uh, and an Israeli insurance startup, Lemonade, has raised $60 million on the idea of replacing brokers and paperwork with bots and machine learning. I wonder if they will call you with hot stock tips or not. So um, whether all this scares you or makes you giddy with anticipation, this conversation is for you. So cue Wagner's also spruch Zarathustra and gaze deep into the glowing eye, the red eye of HAL 9000. We're diving deep into the world of artificial intelligence. In today's episode, we've entitled... Dummies talking about AI. Say hello uh, to our guest today. They're Dr. David Joyner, who's an instructor in Udacity's Artificial Intelligence Nano Degree and lecturer at Georgia, Georgia Tech. 
Rory Russo, VP of Engineering at uh, the ATDC Startup Predicto, and Jackson Morgan, a Georgia Tech student and winning team captain of not only the AT&T IoT Hackathon, but also the most recent WorldPay FinTech Hackathon. First up, how will AI shape our lives in five years? And go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I certainly, I, I, I'm going to once again go against kind of the hyperbolic look at AI. Humans have a tendency to predict things are going to be a lot more advanced in the future than they actually will. Like you have a picture of HAL 9000, which is a general AI that's so advanced it can deduce the fact that uh, it's better to kill all the astronauts to save this mission. Oh, sorry, spoilers. If you haven't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey. That, that, uh, that happened 16 years ago, by the yeah. way. <laughs> um, so, so we're not going to be there at that point. Um, but what we will be seeing is uh, um, more, we'll be seeing things under the cover. We'll be seeing better implementations of things that you're already used to. So better predictions of your uh, like Netflix recommendations or YouTube recommendations. Uh, Driving cars were mentioned. Um, we also, uh, chatbots are currently, they have a lot to be envied. They, they are not necessarily the most diverse things, but as, as we continue, at least over the next five years, we'll see things that we're used to just become a lot more at ease. And it'll be, uh, it, it'll be under the covers, this uh, implementation, because we're used to talking to humans. We're used to interacting with humans. And the better AI gets, the more normal it will actually feel. So it's uh, nothing super spectacular. It, it, it's, it's super spectacular from a technical perspective. But uh, it won't be extremely noticeable. David, yeah. right? Yeah. No, I, okay. okay. I'd, I'd say, uh, so Jackson's right. Um, there's a lot of hype right now on AI. Um, he was being kind to IBM. Um, Watson is cute on Jeopardy, but it's consulting wear. I mean, IBM makes money off consulting. Um, they do great press releases and great marketing, uh, as does GE, as does Accenture, and all the other guys that are trying to sell this fantastical thing they've built when really it's a thousand guys with spreadsheets is what they throw at it. Um, you know, it Jackson, I think, is right in that um, it will be there, but you won't see it in the next five years. We, uh, you know, tiny little startup in Atlanta uh, works with, work with uh, cable companies, so set-top boxes. Um, your set-top box is about to break. Don't bother calling me. I'm going to mail you one um, kind of thing, right? Uh, car batteries. Um, I, I drive a really old car, and I'm partly for this reason, um, but newer cars, you're being tracked. Um, all your data is being uploaded. The car's diagnostics are being constantly uploaded. Um, that data is actually being used for predictive analytics. Um, your car battery is about to die. Here's a $20 Sears uh, gift card, right, for the next uh, car battery. So th there's money to be made there, right, which is why they do it. Um, so I think I'd have to agree. It's not, uh, I'm not going to be walking down the street with my, my phone having uh, AI, you know, answering my questions, what I think what Siri's weird attempt was, <laughs> right? Um, but it's, it's going to be around us, just not in our face yeah. in the next five years. You, you want to buck, buck the trend here, or are you, you going to go with this? No, no, I agree. <laughs> I think that you look at, if you look at where technology was five years ago um, and compare it to where it is now, 
you'd be kind of amazed at how far it's come. But at, there was no point during the last five years where you were like, oh my gosh, this amazing new technology. I'm, I drive probably the opposite car. I drive a Tesla. And it's Tesla's autopilot system, it's, it's adaptive cruise control. It's cruise control that doesn't run you into a wall and can follow lanes, kind of. Uh, it doesn't really feel nearly as, as awesome as kind of it's advertised. It's, it's, don't get me wrong, it's wonderful to be able to just kind of check out when you're in um, stop and go traffic for a while. But it doesn't feel like you're getting into um, Kit from Knight Rider to date myself. Um, <laughs> wow. So, so, but I think that you compare that to you where... Can, it, you can YouTube that if you don't know the <laughs> references. Yeah. It's an amazing cultural but touch point. The original was uh, amazing. The new one, eh, let's see. Um, but the... So you, you compare the, you know, what we have now to five years ago, and it's amazing, but you're not going to have that moment of, oh my gosh, everything just changed. Um, there might be a moment like that at some point in the future with AI. I think like the iPhone was kind of a moment like that where it was a a radically new device right now, but I don't see anything in the next five years that's going to be be quite like that. I think the, the very first time you get into a true self-driving car where you plug in your address and you know you don't even face the road might be a moment like that, but that's that's pretty far I'd out. say that I'm still stuck at you driving a Tesla. I must be in the wrong line of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so um, not five years, but kind of the direction we're headed. What, uh, what movie, uh, a book, Netflix series, video game, you think is going to be a good reference points for where we really are headed? So I think, so I kind of think of that in two different ways. I think one, what AI is going to mean for us as a society and then what that's going to mean for us individually. And I kind of touched on this when I was um, in the chair on my left a little while ago. The but hot I think, seat. Yes, the hot seat. The hot, um, hot seat. It's really not a very hot seat. So um, <laughs> I think the first question is going to be, what does AI mean for us kind of as a society? And I look at some, a lot of video games actually kind of touch on this. Um, the Metal Gear Solid um, series touches on this where... AI is used as a tool for, by you know dictators or evil people to be in charge and to run everything without the the classical problems of you know being in charge and running everything actually having control over everything. And I think that's something that we'll have to wrestle with is whether AI equalizes people or centralizes power to a very small number of people. Even aside from that, in a future where AI can do pretty much everything. Um, what does that mean for us individually? If I don't need to work for a living and really can't do anything that I can't do better than me, what is the purpose of my life? And for that, I look at um, Wally actually as a really interesting example of in a future where everything is supplied automatically and people don't have to work, what do you do for fulfillment? We're hardwired to want to advance, to want to grow, to want to, to succeed, to want to survive. And once that is permanently satiated, what what do we do with our time? So I'd actually like to expand on that a bit. Um, so a lot of times people will say the large threat for AI is that we're going to take away a lot of jobs. And th- these aren't just manufacturing jobs, which are the ones that have generally been taken away by robots, but these are also jobs that are in the more intellectual community. A lot of times things like uh, lawyers and doctors get uh, attacked a lot for this. And there is some concern to be had there. Of course, the traditional lawyer, the traditional doctor, is not going to survive the next decade or two um, because we are going to uh, have uh, artificial intelligence uh, algorithms that are able to do these kinds of diagnoses of whether law or medical. But uh, I do have a reason to be optimistic when it comes to these professions. Uh, I do think that these professions will still be around, but they will be changed. Um, So as an example, let's take the lawyer. 
Right now, we have a legal system that is extremely slow. You have to wait a super long time in order to uh, actually get a lawyer, a publicly appointed lawyer, and uh, go to court, um, which somewhat violates the Bill of Rights, depending on your interpretation of that. Um, but with AI, what we can do is we can allow people to have the tools to be lawyers without the complex Harvard training that you see. So this actually opens up the opportunity for a lot more people to come into this profession. They don't need to memorize all the laws. They can use the tools of AIs and be lawyers. And overall, our legal system gets a lot faster and we can process a lot more people. So AI does take away some jobs. But there are also instances where it will add a new kind of job. But the thing that we need to be wary about is that transition period. We currently have an economy that's set up for something that is old. It's after the Industrial Revolution, uh, which is why I am super happy about things like Udacity, which help people train for the new skills of the next technological era. And as technology progresses faster and faster and faster, we're going to be seeing people who need to be retrained multiple times in their life and that's why technology like <laughs> that is super important we didn't pay him to say that, <laughs> but I think you're, you're touching on something really important too that like when we replaced lawyers as a job part of the reason for that is we also drove down the cost of legal consulting in the first place mm -hmm. if everyone can be their own lawyer and access those relate uh, those uh, those resources then it's you removed a job but you also removed that as a cost to everyday people anyway so you're kind of driving down costs overall. The same thing applies to, to manufacturing in that entire area is that as you automate that process, as you get to a point where things are both produced and maintained automatically without a, you know, a constant paying of salary, you're driving down the cost of those things as well. And as long as those benefits then percolate out to everybody, then we all stand to, to live in a wonderful world. Roy? Blade Runner? Blade Runner. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. Which one? Uh, Which yeah. way? Was it the editor's cut? The director's cut, sorry. The director's cut. cut. Right. Editor's cut, obviously, yeah. it's redundant. Right. The editor just the editor cut just it. So. Cutting. Yeah. The director. Um, so, to, to, I mean, I, and I was being, uh, trying to be funny with Blade Runner. Um, I, I, I'm typically a, a, a pessimist as an engineer. I think <laughs> we tend to be pessimists. Um, I'm an optimist with this, um, and maybe that's the economics uh, in me, right, is, is looking at, if you, want, if you want to go back to the Industrial Revolution um, as an example, um, Industrial Revolution happened, jobs got automated, um, right, <laughs> it's automated not by today's standards, right, but automated. Um, unemployment, people actually, more people were actually employed. Uh, because of that. Um, what makes this time different? I, I think, you know, for better or worse, the, the system we have uh, in this country and parts of the world um, can absorb the shocks. People adapt. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not overly worried about this mass unemployment because uh, now trucks can drive themselves. Um, if e even current state of things, um, with people complaining that jobs are going overseas and manufacturing and all that stuff, they've actually lost more jobs to automation uh, than jobs going overseas. Uh, that seems to be kind of drowned out in, in the political discourse, right, on, on, on TV. Um, yet, unemployment is still at a rather healthy, you know, natural unemployment rate, right? It's hovering around 4 or 
right? So I, I think the proof isn't there to have this paranoid, you know, dystopian thing. I, I am worried about how AI will be used um, by humans, not what AI will do on its own. Like, does it become sentient mm -hmm. and conscious? Yeah, I'm, I'm not worried about stuff like that. Yeah, just conviction. Uh, but I'm more worried about things like the NSA, mm -hmm. um, our own government, other governments, right, using... Um, AI and mass data collection against their own people or other people, right? We're, we're really good at being bad at each other as humans, right? <laughs> Completely agree. Um, and there, we've already seen use cases as to the point. Um, AIs are sometimes confidently referred to as this is the right answer, but they're just as good as the data that's given to them. Uh, we saw, I, I don't remember if it was Microsoft or Google, uh, they created this uh, rec image recognition software. But this image recognition software turned out to be actually pretty racist because what it started doing is it started recognizing people of African-American descent as monkeys. Uh, which is absolutely something that you do not want to do as an AI company. But the reason why it did that was because they, their training set was mostly white and Asian people. And they didn't have a lot of people of African-American descent. So once they added that into their training set, once they added that into their data, they were able to get a more accurate output. So being completely confident that because an AI is something objective, that its output is going to be correct, is very dangerous, especially if the training set is horrible. And another similar example is Tay, uh, which was a Microsoft chat bot uh, that, yeah. uh, oh, yes. that was 4chan a got a hold of and yeah. uh, also made it to have but some 4chan pretty, trained it in a different way. Yeah, they trained it a different way. Um, so you need to be careful about the data yep. set. And that's probably the largest threat, the largest, the scariest it, was, thing. That was the AI. one where it was, it was supposed to be like a, a teenage mm -hmm. uh, voice. And then because of the responses they were getting, it, it learned to be very racist and bigoted, right? Yes, mm -hmm. right. it did. Yeah. I think the, the, the Industrial Revolution example is brought up a lot as an example of what could happen in the, in the future with the uh, AI as it'll open up new jobs just the way the Industrial Revolution did. I think the reason why, my counterargument at least to that would be, what makes this different is in the Industrial Revolution, we took a, a small portion of what humans can do and we automated it or we streamlined it. And so we, in turn, made our living out of the rest of the stuff that only we could do. We're potentially on the cusp of doing away with the idea of there being something that only we can do. So the Industrial Revolution took some of the, you know, the manufacturing stuff that we physically are able to, to do with our bodies. But if we can automate our minds to the point where it can do everything, it's equivalent to us, that presents some different challenges. I think you're still stuck with the economics of it. Um, the fact that, I mean, we, we could cite Uber as an example uh, if they're still in business in 10 years, right? <laughs> uh, you know, they want to they wanna have self-driving cars, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and not pay their employees or non-employees, right? Whatever. Um, they would have to manufacture cars. Mm -hmm. um, is that economically feasible uh, for them? They're just going to lose more money faster, right? Um, the Industrial Revolution l kicked off the whole, the, the, the manufacturing automation, or the automated manufacturing uh, revolution, really, right? Um, but we didn't automate everything, right? So I, I think it's... We automated where, where uh, it made economic sense uh, to automate. And you have to think it took this long just to get to the point of where we are today where you can fully automate an automobile factory, right? Um, I mean, that's, that's a long time. You know, will AI 
be there in 100 years where we're all uh, completely automated out of jobs. Um, I, just, I just don't see it. I think, I think humans are, are adaptable um, and, and resilient. And, you know, I study yeah, uh, and, capitalism. So. I, I, think, I think it does get back to the social systems, right? So you have, if you really boil everything down to what we do in our society, our societal network, is, is to be able to put food on the table. Mm -hmm have secure, you know, security and home. And, and, and really what we've learned here in the last election cycle is, is dignity, right? Sense of dignity. Did we learn that? Yeah. <laughs> Where did we learn this? Uh, uh, different dignity than I did. Well, the need, need for, uh, so, I don't know. I, I, I'm still wrestling with my, the, this data set. Um, but uh, the, the, the fact is, though, it really is about, as a species, can we, you know, survive and procreate? And, and our, our societal and economic systems seem to need to be up, upgraded. We need, we need a, a new version of this. To comment on the social implications of uh, all this and uh, making sure that uh, the people who uh, are able to run the AIs are more open and we don't have this concentrated class of people who own the AIs, uh, there are a few threats that are out there. I see one as being um, patent law. And uh, we, we've seen things like the pharmaceutical industry go out of control with the, the patent law to the point where only the large uh, pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are able to propose things. If we see this kind of policy being applied to algorithms, to AIs, where only the large companies, IBM, Google, uh, are able to patent these AIs, and, and are the sole ones that are able to run these algorithms for years upon years, then we hinder the ability for independent entrepreneurs to use these algorithms to find new ways to apply them. So I think that the best thing that, from a government perspective, in helping shape society on this, is to uh, create policy that encourages entrepreneurs, independent people, to start applying the knowledge that they have without any kind of restrictive uh, policies that favor large companies that already have the power. I'll, uh, I'll mention that we actually have a patent pending. On, uh, <laughs> so you're part of the problem. On, uh, I may be part of the problem. Uh, but yeah, we have a patent pending on the... Um, uh, the generation of features uh, that we train our models on. Um, yeah. It's completely uh, automatic, right? This ain't your father's quadcopter. Uh, this episode is entitled By Land, Sea, and Air, and we'll explore um, the world of drones of all sizes and modalities. We have, we have another insightful uh, group of guests. We got Trolls Adrian from the Metro Atlanta Chamber, professional drone racer and collegiate champion, Nick Wild Willie Willard. I love that. That's an awesome name, by the way. Uh, and Justin Lee, a drone entrepreneur. Um, with the advancements in, in hardware and software, unmanned vehicles have shifted from the military to consumer markets in a relatively short order. While most people thinking of the predators buzzing high above the battlefield when they hear the word drone, there's a growing diversity of drones. I mean, like, it's almost like the animals that inspire their creations. Uh, drones can not only fly, but they can swim and crawl the earth. Um, and even more interesting, we can find enormous drones taking to the sea while micro drones take flight. So Southern Company, I was talking with uh, Michael Britt from the Southern Company Innova uh, Energy Innovation, Innovation Center yesterday, and he was sharing with me that they, they use drones to inspect their nuclear power plants and have begun to use them to inspect power transmission lines instead of helicopters. They recently had two uh, helicopter accidents, and so they're starting to, to look at drones as a solution for that. They're also using micro drones to inspect towers to ensure the safety of those towers before having a person climb on them. Um, if you look into the interwebs, you'll find that the U.S. Navy is driving innovation in the, in the 
in the seaborne drone space thanks to their advanced undersea, undersea prototyping program. Last uh, August, the U.S. Navy tested three types of seaborne machines uh, the at the same time. The surface robot was an ocean aero submarine. The underwater robot was uh, the, the Marlin drone sub-vehicle made by Lockheed Martin. And the flying drone was a foldable vector hawk drone also made by Lock Lockheed Martin. This year, Huntington Ingalls and Boeing unveiled a 50-ton modular seaborne drone that um, in its design kind of mimics the train and its cars, which you can, you can change out what's in between the, the beginning and the end. Um, and so it can do anything from surveil to deliver a weapon payload. So it's a pretty enormous drone. Um, and then humanitarian organizations, I was speaking with an, a gentleman from CARE International, and they're saying that they're beginning to uh, look at seaborne drones uh, for disaster relief efforts because with the climate change uh, uh, impacting coastal areas the most, the, these agencies are expecting that they're going to have to be ready to deliver supplies and uh, other things via seaborne methods rather than airborne methods. Um, then there's the whole swarming airborne drones, spider-like crawling drones, and all kinds of science fiction fantasies turning into reality. So they're getting smaller, faster, and better. Uh, and that's what we're really going to explore today is, you know, how, how is the acceleration of this technology, how is the miniaturization, but also the humongnification, if you want to coin a new word, how is that going to open up new opportunities and new solutions uh, for individuals, for companies, for society? So um, it's a chance for us to, to really get deep, dig, deep in, so dig deeper, so let's get started. Let me start off with something, you guys can, unless you got something burning in your head for each other, uh, but let me kind of prime the pump here. Um, what, do you, what do you think are some of the unexpected ways drones are going to change your daily lives from land, sea, or airborne? Unexpected ways, right? It's kind of, there's some obvious ones. What are some things that you wouldn't think about that because of miniaturization, because of the automation, because of humongous size and stuff? I think you're going to see um, a shocking reduction in injuries. Um, right now, somewhere around 94% of traffic-related fatalities are caused because of human error. So when you go an automated route, that's going to give you repeatability. And when you are talking point A to point B, that's all it is. We travel the same roads. We use the same routes on a regular basis. When you automate that, the person can check out without it being a problem. And I think that's what we're running into now. A lot of individuals are checking out from the actual driving process, and then you run into rear ends, you run into running off the road, um, and, and I think that's going to be one of your biggest, one of your biggest uh, benefits. Charles, Nick? Yeah, um, I think what, what's really interesting about drone technology is that it's a, it's a tremendously valuable platform technology for doing tremendously boring things, mm. right? Uh, aside from the admittedly ridiculously cool stuff that Nick does, uh, flying around these, uh, these, these devices, most of the stuff that drones are going to be doing, um, whether it's transporting people or inspecting pipelines or moving boxes or whatever it is, it's pretty mundane stuff. So I think the, the unexpected thing, the, I think the unexpected effect is actually not necessarily going to be you seeing a drone doing something really, really cool and, and thinking, oh, I didn't think they could do that. 
I think it's going to be more in the overall, speaking to, to Justin's point, it's going to be overall the reduction of friction in society. Mm. Just the orders of magnitude of improvement in efficiency in society, our precision of data, our precision of our, our knowledge, and our ability to do things in a better way than we ever thought possible before. Mm. Because that we, can, we can now go places we were never able to, do, to go before because we have visioning technology. You know, think of just, again, boring things like you know, crop dusting or irrigation you can improve that by by checking soil moisture uh, using drone technology just that, that kind of stuff which is again pretty mundane but can have enormous impacts on, on just the way society functions hmm. you, you spark a thought there because um, connectivity uh, and um, reducing friction within society I, I, it gets me thinking of how how will these impact um, you know, underserved areas rural areas we mentioned but what about in underserved areas within urban environments how will these, you know, these drones help with, uh, you know, getting, solving some of those problems, logistics-wise. Again, as far as from an urban standpoint, we lose over $100 billion annually stuck in traffic jams. Mm -hmm. um, we saw I-85. Yeah, with the collapse of the bridge. Uh, just, just not too long ago, and, and people were losing their mind. Um, not only the, 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 the problem of navigating around that, but then the businesses that had frontage in that area mm. uh, saw it, you know, wiped out. Now imagine if you didn't have that required infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? Because the sky never falls, mm -hmm. you know. Well, I'm also thinking about like food deserts, where you know the, the 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 economics of a supermarket in an area that might not have it. But then if you're able to have reduce friction, reduce cost, mm -hmm. get get folks fresh fruits, fresh vegetables to the areas that may not have that accessibility. Well. For sure, uh, there, there's an economics question there, and I think you, you need to definitely uh, expand the, the definition of drones, which of course AUVSI has done to include autonomous vehicles. So if you include the autonomous vehicle in that, uh, that calculation, yes, absolutely the autonomous vehicle is gonna create uh, enormous possibilities for, for underserved communities of various sorts. It's gonna reduce things like uh, the, uh, the jobs housing imbalance, for example. It's gonna enable people to, to connect to, to job centers in ways they never thought possible because of, of the whole mobility revolution, right, where, where transportation is, it becomes a service rather than uh, a capital asset you've got sitting in your garage, which is obviously barriers to entry to, to owning a vehicle are pretty tremendous uh, uh, if, you're, if you're not, uh, if you're below the, below the middle class in, in terms of your social status in, the, in, the, in this country, so, uh, or any country for that matter. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's enormous opportunities there. As I mentioned earlier, though, the, the question is, you need the, the economics ha, uh, you know have to work out in terms of what is the cost to deliver that package or what is the cost to transport that person um, once you bring down the cost to a sufficient level yes then the world the, the world's open the world opens up hmm. Nick what about you what, what unexpected ways are you, are you thinking <clears throat> we're gonna see this impact our lives I'm not sure about unexpected, but personally, I mean, I just see a lot of jobs everywhere that would just seem like they'd be made safer if you could just do that remotely. Like rather than putting a human body in harm's way, such as like, you know, doing like cell tower inspection and stuff like that, rather than having a dude climb, you know, 20,000 feet into the air on one of those towers, you just send a $200 drone up to take a look at it and, oh, done in like five minutes, come back down. You know, I think it's going to make a lot more jobs like that much safer and a lot more efficient. It's interesting because then, then you have the unexpected disruption there on the economic side where the jobs, you know, someone who is willing to, like I, I, I go up uh, Georgia 400 and there's a billboard for tree trimmers, 
you know, they're paying pretty good money if you're willing to get up in a tree with a chainsaw. Uh, but what happens when you take away those, those dangers? You know, it, that's the, you, you look at the agrarian revolution and, and how small towns kind of shrunk because it didn't take 50 people to, to harvest the wheat. It was just one machine and one person. Um, does that, I mean, there's certainly upside. It frees up people to have new opportunities and, and, and for society to, to kind of reach new, new levels. But how do we make sure that uh, there's, there's a talent pipeline that gets into this? So I'm curious, you know, within the professional and collegiate ranks of, of racers, I mean, how would you describe the average socioeconomic uh, profile of these people? Are, are these pretty much uh, college-educated people that are doing this stuff, or is there people from all walks of life? Oh, I mean, it's everyone from all walks of life. I mean, it, it's kind of nuts. I mean, I would say on average, you know, it's usually, like in most of the races, it's, you know, probably 25 to 40-year-old middle-class men. That's most of it at this point. But, you know, as people, as this starts growing, I mean, we've been growing just drones in, you know, in general grow, you know, orders of magnitude every two years. I mean, you're going to get more and more and more people into it. And we've seen in the last, you know, year or two, the cost of drones has come down exponentially. So almost anyone can afford them now. I think once, you know, we're, we're really approaching a point where I'd say within the next six months, we'll get to a point where drones in like, you know, you know, high class drones will be cheap enough for almost anyone to get their hands on one and start, you know, playing around with it and learning the skills that's required to fly these things. And I think that's, to pull off of both points, the, the reduction in cost is, is where we're, we're seeing all of this interest because um, obviously if you're, if you're going to use something that is critical, then it can't fail. Right. But when it's so cheap, it can. And when you start to factor that in, then you can build in a situation that is you can build in a manner that is not designed where failure is not an option, where you say, okay, it's okay if this burns out. If that burns out, then you can put redundancies on your platform and the device can still make it to home base. And, and, and that opens up another opportunity for you to do whatever you want. But to touch on your point of, of putting people out of work on the more dangerous side, to touch on Troll's point, you would be balancing that by now if, if you have an automotive replacement because it's expensive for you to own a vehicle especially if you're in a rural area you have significantly longer travel times if you're going with an automated system which is running significantly longer you think a driver's needing rest that's downtime no no downtime higher profit so more people will be in the workforce maybe not as dangerous but there's more opportunities you can apply for that job that's one one thing you see on a regular basis do you have reliable transportation mm. yes no no, you're not going for yeah, it. Yeah, this kind of touches on the theme of our last episode around the, the, the downside of di disruption. There's like, there's, it's almost like our financial and economic system needs to be rethought by based on the technological capabilities that we're, we're reaching, right? It blows my mind on this stuff. You got more thoughts on this? Well, I was just going to break, bring uh, or touch on that point again about job creation. Yes, there are obviously going to be jobs that are going to be affected by this. Either they're going to be no, no longer in existence or they're going to be significantly altered mm -hmm. in what they do. However, I do believe, and I think Nick, you touched upon when you were on the hot seat, there is going to be a whole new class of jobs that are, that is, that is drone operator, mm -hmm. uh, that, that'll, that'll be created from this. And this, this may actually be, you're just basically on call from whenever an autonomous drone kind of runs into trouble, 
doesn't know what it's gonna what, what to do and you got to get it out of trouble you may only be working at to take for 20 or 30 seconds at a time but you have to be really really good you have to be able to think three-dimensionally you have to be able to strap on a VR headset know exactly where you are you know those kinds of things <laughs> so I actually think that people who are really really good at playing video games especially like first-person shooters those kinds of things are going to be uh, in pretty high demand uh, in in the future for those kinds of for those kinds of opportunities they might be responsible for a, a group of maybe 50 to 100 drones and whenever one of them doesn't really know what's going on around it you gotta you have to jump in and, and get it out of trouble and remote, it's remote good that you, you bring up video games and esports e is another is a future episode that we're putting together right now and we were talking nick that there are people that are cross-pollinating do, do you see that true that what, that oh that? absolutely i mean i think we have three of the 16 pilots in drl are professional they did professional esports for a while and then they moved over to drones. I mean, one of the DRL pilots this year came in because DRL created a video game competition competition where they took their simulator and they had a competition of flying, you know, the video game simulator and the pilot who won is now in DRL from $75,000 contract. I mean, it's, they have, as of this year, you know, there's extreme cross-pollination between both of those. I think it's just going to get even more intense every year. Yeah, and, and Charles, to your point, yeah, there, there certainly was a lot of uh, buggy whips uh, companies that were put out of business by automotive, and that's just part of the, the evolution that we have. But it, it is interesting to think, like, there are things that we're not going to expect uh, that are now possible because of the convergence of some of the technologies you guys have been talking about. So, Mom, you were wrong. It turns out you can make money playing video games. Um, Esports, as the world of the competitive video gaming is called, uh, has become serious business. This, this episode is entitled The Emergence of Esports, and we'll explore how we've gone from a friendly game of Pong in our living room to millions of people watching the best of the best battle it out on dizzying numbers of games that you can watch in competitive arenas. And we have another insightful group of guests um, to help us sort this out. Adam Toll of Haste, Connie Combray, is that how you say it, Combray? Cambry, sorry, Connie Cambry, I should have asked you before I started recording, of Control Freak, and Albert Lee of the Georgia Tech Esports Club. And thankfully, they're here because I'm ranked 188th, 204,000th bronze player on H1Z1 King of the Kill, and I'm going to need their help. So, all right, if we got him laughing, we, we got that joke. That was good. All right. I know, I, I heard at least one of you snicker that, what, professional video gamers? Seriously? Uh, these, pro these losers are probably still living in their parents' basement. But actually, uh, their parents might be living in the guest wing of their uh, the child's beachfront mansion by now. Um, modern esports is a juggernaut. I mean, light years beyond the Red Bull-fueled land parties of the early aughts. I mean, games have become complex. Price pools reach eight figures, and a growing number of colleges and universities now offer esports scholarships. We'll break it down for you no matter where your skill level is. And so, I know, like, like me, if you have a young child, a teenager, you know Esports is big now. Um, professional video gamers have become Michael Jordans and, Leon, and Lionel Messi's to their fans, and complete with NASCAR-style team jerseys, regular live stream casts of their gameplay, and uh, very robust social media presences that these, these players have. You, you can see it for yourself if you watch Turner and uh, the, season, the start of season two of the E-League, which is basically just shot a couple blocks north of where we record this on the Turner lot. So last week I attended DreamHack Atlanta, which is billed as the largest digital festival in the world. And as our friends at the Metro Atlanta Chamber and Choose the ATL called it, the Coachella of esports. Uh, for three days, thousands, I thought that was apt actually, uh, for three days, thousands of people gathered to watch teams from across the world compete against each other 
to take home the trophies and large cash prizes. I mean, you could walk from, I counted at least six stages with TV studio, TV studio quality lighting, sounds, game commentary, in-game commentary, with the, the, you know, just like you would see in any, any major sporting events. And it was fun watching and hearing the roar of the crowd as five versus five, three versus three, and one versus one battles waged from everything from old school Pokemon to Overwatch to Halo. It was, uh, it was very impressive. I mean, obviously, I'm impressed. And, and before you write me off as a fanboy, um, I want to share what Morgan Stanley uh, has shared recently with some of the research they have on the market, which I scribbled down last week listening to Atlanta's own Todd Harris of Hi-Rez Studios, the maker of Spite and, I mean, Spite, Smite, maker of Smite and Paladins, uh, 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 and he was speaking at Switchyard's uh, Made in Atlanta speaking series. And so here are a couple of things I, I wrote down and then also went online and researched this, which you can do yourself. It's amazing to me. We have 7 billion people in the world. 2.1 billion of them play in a casual fashion video games. 2.1 out of 7 billion people playing video games. Um, more people tuned in to watch the live broadcast of the League of Legends final than Game 7 of the NBA finals. Uh, the prize pool for League of Legends tournament was larger than the Masters Golf Tournament prize pool. Twitch, the biggest website for live stream broadcasts, has 9.7 million daily viewers versus the 7.2 million who tune in to ESPN on a daily basis. And that's some amazing stats right there. Huge levels of engagement. And if you want to go to the birthplace of esports in South Korea, you can watch three different 24-7 esports channels. In fact, uh, when the South Korean soccer team left for the most recent World Cup, um, they had the choice uh, to invite some inspirational heroes to come give them a pep talk, and they chose members of, the, of, the Koreans, of Korea's top StarCraft competitive team to come give them their pep talk. Um, so, look, pro sports teams are catching on here in the United States as well. 11 of the 17 NBA team owners have already invested in esports. NFL owners like New England Patriots' Bob Kraft uh, has done so, and large sport and sports entertainment venues uh, and ventures are joining the fray. It's coming to the collegiate level, too, with, I think there's the University of California, Irvine, helping to pioneer a varsity team, and Georgia Tech's athletic department is busily working to create its own team, um, which is quite amazing. But if you step back and think about it, why, why is it surprising? I mean, we already do that for people who bounce balls on a court and throw it into a metal hoop, um, and, or uh, throw a football and, and catch it. So why wouldn't you take people who are already competing and in, in using teamwork on five versus five and three versus three courts and one versus one? This is just like any other athletic venture. Um, so anyway, let's follow the money, and uh, I think you'll see that esports is for real. So what, what's the part, what part of the hype don't you believe? Where's, where's, where, where would you like to call BS? Um, I alluded to it in the hot seat, but it's something that really uh, hits home for me, especially since I work for the for and with the community, is, again, this idea that you have to have, you do have to have a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. Um, a lot of money goes into the industry. However, you don't need to be the optic or the phase of esports in order to make it in esports. Like I said before, they have free play entry. We just saw at DreamHack this weekend with the Halo Championship Series that was happening. One of our teams, um, Oxygen Supremacy, uh, they, they came through. They came all the way up through that sort of open call invite and now they've qualified for the Pro League. Wow. So um, 
we're doing a sponsorship giveaway right now and that's the sentiment really is I don't have enough subs I don't have enough this I don't have enough that and that's the stigma that I really hope that more conversations like this start to break is mm -hmm. that it does take training but gaming since gaming has ever existed has been for everyone mm -hmm. and esports is no different mm -hmm. so kind of a, a move away from the professionalization and you know, and more of embracing the, the, it's still a grassroots, anybody can, can join. It's still pick up basketball. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What about you, Albert? Where do you, where do you think, uh, where's, mm. what hype aren't you believing in this uh, hyped up world of esports? Well, um, this kind of ties in with what Connie said. There's this current trend I've noticed, especially of some recent uh, emails and contacting I've been through. A lot of individuals or rather organizations think that if they have enough money they can just toss it at the problem and start their own regional tournament or just toss money at a school or if the school themselves might start up a program just say it'll run itself we got scholarships good players will come and then they don't put any time and effort into it and i'm afraid that there's too many people trying to join this kind of hype train on great the train's moving, we gotta get on it, throw all of your money at eSports. Mm. But then they don't put any effort into it. They don't put any of their heart into it and any of their motivation to it. They hope that with enough money, it'll just run itself and that's just going to be a train wreck and a bubble of pop. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you guys have uh, a chance to hear from one another. I'm curious uh, if you had thoughts or ideas that you would like to uh, to share or, or questions you'd like, penetrating questions you'd like to ask? I, I definitely do. Um, first of all, you didn't ask me, but my answer to that question is I believe all the hype. Oh, you do? You <laughs> yes. believe? Absolutely. I, I should Absolutely. let you answer. That's right. I As started over here with policy. Connie. Yes. I, 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 went, I was thinking I started here, but Adam, what's your, what are your thoughts? Uh? Um, <laughs> I believe all the hype. Uh, no, but actually I do have a couple of questions for these yeah, guys, um, and maybe I'll start with Connie. So there's, um, there is absolutely nothing in this bubble that you would not burst. On, on e well, like what? I mean, pick, I don't know. I'm pick, pick something, and and I'll tell you if I believe it or not. No, I mean, I mean is like it really going to quadruple no, in like, the next uh, year? Is it really going to continue to to double, quadruple, quintuple? Are we are just hitting an inflection? I think point? it really. I I think it really will be at the level of the NFL and MLB um, and NBA. Absolutely. Yeah, because it seems like there's, there's definitely on the engagement side. Is there is there sustainability on the monetization side? Where's Will, will this continue to be up at that level? Yes. Where's the money to be made? Uh, the money is to be made in the audience, I think, uh, just, just as it is with traditional sports. Mm. Like jersey sales. Uh, I've seen it's amazing how many teams throw their jerseys up and, and get a lot of people buying them, right? So. Sure, jersey sales and um, advertising and sponsorship and, you know, the way that money. So, I mean, this is content, mm -hmm. right? This is content and audiences. But it's a, um, it is a new combination of media and technology and spectator sport um, that I think the, the rest of the economic, you know, the economic engines that drive um, the NFL and MLB and so and so forth are just starting to turn over in this space, mm -hmm. um, and so the, uh, there's an enormous amount of enthusiasm. Is there some frothiness in some aspects here and there? Sure, 
as there is with anything that people get excited about, but is the arc of what's happening with esports um, incredibly exciting? Um, yes. So um, there's there's three sports that come to mind that have emerged almost out of nowhere. It seems like um, esports. The last episode was about drone racing. We had drone racer, right? So drone racing league, uh, and then major league eating. I mean, who could have predicted <laughs> 20 years ago? that three of the biggest growing sports segments would have been video gamers, people eating lots and lots of food, <laughs> and then flying remote control uh, equipment around. It just blows my mind. That's the world we live in. Uh, so if you're Major League Baseball and want to know where your audience went, that's where that went. Um, all right, you said you had some questions for your, yeah, your yeah, fellow Yeah, yeah, so I mean, I would, I, would, I would start with Connie. Uh, you guys have done such an amazing job with your community engagement. Um, and with the way that you uh, relate at a really genuine level with, um, with the people in the esports community and your users. Um, what are the, you know, I mean, aside from something that, you know, of course I completely agree with, which is genuine level engagement is super important. Um, to what else do you attribute your success in doing that? Thank you, <laughs> first <laughs> and foremost. Um, well, authenticity, like I said, I can't stress it enough. It's in our mission. It's in, it's posted on the wall in our conference room. It's posted on the wall, and when you first walk into the office, it is the end-all, be-all of what makes or breaks a gaming company, brand, publisher, etc. Um, beyond being transparent, uh, I think. A lot of the success comes down to individualism. Um, we are creeping up on a million followers on Twitter, um, but our approach has always been to treat it as though we only have one follower on Twitter and engage with that person um, on a one-on-one -on -one basis. The same can be said for when they come up to us at the booth, um, especially when I was just at Guardian Con in Tampa, just previous to us going to DreamHack, I had four people who came up and said, oh, Connie, I remember you from PAX East. Or, hey, Connie, remember when we talked at PAX South? And I'm just like, these, these guys are starting to travel alongside us. They're following the games, and they're following us, and they're having those connections. And it might seem insignificant when you look at the numbers or when you look at this, you know, the back end, but to them, they're our brand ambassadors at the end of the day. And they see that they have a direct connection, direct response into this company that could potentially one day be a partner or one day, you know, they could be coming, you know, we could be going to them asking for a partnership deal one day. So it's important to get to know these people now in the gaming space and also kind of on a personal level. I have a little bit more fun with my Snapchat audience. Um, we've done homework before. Um, one of the kids we asked, um, sort of put out a gaming thing that was coming up, asked who's going to be there. He said, I can't, I have a track meet. And I made a point the next day, I snapped him back just to chat. They don't know that. They don't know who's behind the glass, but um, I asked what place he got in, how it went, and they were just those little efforts, those little moments. That is what, that's what keeps this industry going. Great question, Adam. Great. You should start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
That brings us to the end of this special episode of the Hump Day Exchange. I hope you enjoyed what you heard, and I certainly want to thank all of our 2017 guests and partners. Be sure to check out TechSquareATL.com for regular stories about TechSquare. And I wanted to give a final thank you to you, our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you shared this podcast with your friends. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and certainly we'd love to have you leave a review. So until you see the camel silhouette beamed in the sky high again, this has been the Hump Day Exchange.